Welcome to The Naked Truth. Peace to you. We are in the book of Matthew. It's Saturday night, so we're um, in the Gospels. We're seeing what it is Jesus had to say, those red letters. Um, we're in chapter 21, and we're going to begin with verse 1. Now, when they drew near, to, near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. So, as always, forgive me, if please, if I pronounce any of these wrong, whether it's a name or a place. Um, so, but what the people we're talking about is Jesus and his disciples on the move. Um, and um, that's it in a nutshell, verse 2, saying that I'm going to the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. So Jesus is doing something here that I've talked about before that you see occurring in things like gaming, um, but also in um, board game. Well, it's gaming also. So whether gaming electronically or board game or whatever the game may be, it's being someone being sent on a quest. And in this case, it's the disciples being given a simple quest, um, but with specific directions that they're supposed to follow and do, whether they make sense to them or not. And it seems to me that's sort of a hidden message about Christianity, not even hidden, but maybe a correlating message about Christianity, that sometimes the things that we're told to do, like turn any other cheek, for instance, don't always make sense to us in one way, like in a human nature sense, but in another sense, like a big picture unfolding karma type sense, it may very well make perfect sense um but anyway so jesus is giving them the directions to go um to a village and um retrieve the animal and even going to give them a message as to what to say verse three and if anyone says anything to you you shall say the lord has need of them and immediately he will send them so animals i should have said the donkey and the colt the um mother and the baby animals donkeys jackasses and this actually is a interesting timing since it's the second time that donkeys are appearing in our readings in recent history if you've read along with me recently you saw the mr ed episode basically where it talks about the talking donkey the talking jackass from the old testament uh, in the book of Numbers, um, you can see that in the past readings, read along with me even, the past readings here on um, this podcast platform, Anchor, Spotify, um, or Apple or Google Podcasts, or if you don't have any access to any of those, if you are an adult, you can go to my website, hungtgirl.com, and look up the Matthew chapter 21 reading you can actually read along with me there you can do that actually with tonight's reading also um look that up there um with the spirit and soul links there on the site to get there and um it may be labeled something else but if you count down to it matthew chapter 21 should pop up and you can see it there where um and read along with me actually with the scrolling text and see where it's mentioned before, um, where, where we're talking about this anyway, the part about they're talking donkey won't be there because we only have the Gospels on my site since that's what we focus on. But if you 
go to Anchor, Spotify, and the others, you can see it recently. There is only, it wasn't that long ago, maybe a week at or, or so ago at the most. But I just thought it was interesting to see that the pack mules, the animals, the jackasses, the donkeys is appearing again with an, and with a significant role. And not to be um, sacrificed, you know, not to be one of the animal sacrifices that seems to get barbecued but instead with a prominent role one in one case in that case it was a talking animal in this case the animal doesn't have to say anything the animals serve their purpose as a regal source uh, as a, a, a regal resource in carrying jesus instead of uh, a lowly resource of uh say like mining or something like that you might think of in american history Verse 4, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, so this is the narrator, the one who's relaying the story of Matthew to us, letting us know um, that they believe that what's happened with Jesus telling them to go get the animals so that he can um, basically, so that what's about to happen can unfold is so that this purpose can be fulfilled. This is the narrator letting us know they believe this moment in Matthew is the fulfillment of this moment in history, and a prophetic moment that you can find in the Old Testament. And we're about to read about it in verse 5. Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the narrator here of Matthew is letting us know that they believe that what's happening with Jesus telling them to go get the donkey and its child, the donkey and foal, to um, go get them so that he can ride into Jerusalem on them is a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. And you can read it in the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament, chapter 9, verse 9 is what is being quoted there so it's none of this is none of that is red letter it's letting us know that that's what the narrator believes is being fulfilled there and actually it does make sense that um jesus writing i mean if if you believe that which i mean who else has done that to fulfill that no one in the thousands of years since then and no one since before jesus has done it to fulfill that prophecy so it seems almost it seems impossible to me as a Christian to believe anyone else would fulfill that prophecy. But if you're going to believe that's a true prophecy from the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, Zechariah, what Jesus and the, his contemporaries would call the prophets, that's when they say the prophets, that's in Zechariah is one of the ones included there. But So if you're going to believe those prophecies are true, Jesus has to be the fulfillment of that prophecy, As for instance. And there are other cases where the narrator will either point it out, or in some cases, Jesus will point it out to them that they're fulfilling prophecy in the things they're saying and the things they're doing. Um, and this is one of those instances of not Jesus pointing it out, but the narrator pointing it out that that's prophecy being fulfilled in them retrieving the animals for Jesus to ride into town on. Verse 6, so the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. So they got a command, whether it made sense to them or not, and they were obedient and followed it. Verse 7, they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and sat him on them. So just like he told them to do, they did. They retrieved the animals. And in this gospel, it doesn't go over 
when the people who were there around the animals did stop and question them and they responded, replied with the same answer Jesus had put in their mouth, the words Jesus gave them to say. This gospel moves on over that, glazes over, (laughs) moves past that without mentioning it. Um, But it does get mentioned in other gospels. Verse 8, And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So this is all leading up to what's called in modern terms uh, Palm Sunday, where you'll see people of certain faiths walk around with palm branches. Sometimes it's even just one leaf off of a palm tree or raw branch. And that's way their way of showing um, reverence to Palm Sunday and the fact that people did this moment in time of laying down not just uh, palm branches and palm leaves for Jesus to walk on, basically paving a way for him to walk on um, with not just those palm leaves, but even their own clothes that they were, were wearing showing just how much they respected and loved loved and how highly they thought of Jesus to take the clothes off their back for him to walk on just to make his way to the city so let you know how highly regarded Jesus was but Jesus isn't letting it blow his head up instead he's not riding in in a limo or on a planking where um, there's people carrying him in so that he can uh, just sit back and chill and ride on one of those comfy couches. Um, No, not at all. Instead, he's riding on an animal you wouldn't even suspect, on a donkey with the pole, the the baby donkey at that. So not even the full-grown one with plenty of sense. The baby donkey that's still, uh, that's who Jesus rode into town on. So not trying to blow himself up at all in the sense of, clout chasing or anything like that instead humble and lowly the same message he gives to us Christians the then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying so this is what the crowd is shouting and chanting oh sorry I didn't realize it was the same verse so we'll begin again verse 9 then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So um, this is what the crowds are chanting as Jesus is passing through them. And what they're chanting, and this is what threw me off why I didn't realize it was all the same verse. Because it's sort of inset where I'm reading it. And um, what they're saying is uh, Hosanna basically saying Praise God, save now, Lord, um, to the son of David. The son of David is them saying, is um, the title that they're giving to Jesus, saying that they believe he's the fulfillment of that prophecy from the Old Testament that says uh, there'll be a son, capital son, meaning of God, but to come of, meaning through, the line of David. David is the same King David. David and Goliath David so they believe he's the fulfillment of the Messiah Christ who's prophesied to have come in the old what we call the Old Testament through the son uh, through the uh, bloodline of their King David and um, he would be the son of God their savior 
they're saying they believe in all that. That's what they're saying in saying, so son of David. So they're recognizing him and as that fulfillment. And they're saying, um, uh, God bless you, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in highest. Um, so they're basically giving praises. And they're also reciting um, Psalm 118.26. So whether they're reciting Psalm 118.26 or they're fulfilling what was considered to be prophecies in the chapter, uh, in the book of Psalms, chapter 118.26, uh, you can figure out whether they're actually just reciting it or they happen to be saying that and they're saying it is fulfilling that Old Testament prophecy. Both are possible, and they're not mutually exclusive. So both could be true. Verse 10, And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So it was a huge commotion when Jesus showed up. It's not some quiet moment. Um, Verse 11, So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. So first thing is they're recognizing it's Jesus, so they know they know who he is and where he's from. They're saying from Nazareth, but they're kind of getting it wrong when they're saying he's the prophet. But they're getting it right in the sense he does give out prophecies. He said things that are going to come true, and they did. For instance, the destruction of the temple, he prophesied that, and it came true even after his own crucifixion and as we Christians believe, resurrection, ascension, and everything after all of those events. Then the same prophecies he gave about the temple came true, among other things. So them calling him the prophet is also true. When they're saying it's Jesus, that's true. Saying he's the prophet from Nazareth to Galilee, Galilee, also true. So they're not misidentifying him. They're identifying him correctly to... um. Um, in what they're shouting, even though they're not um, there. So, and in doing that, they're not doing anything criminal that in the eyes of the religious people, like saying, oh, it's the son of God. Oh, it's um, anything like that. Because if they did that, that would take it to a different level in the eyes of the law, the religious law enforcement. Um, Just as a side note, verse 12, then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. So Jesus turned it out. He went to the temple where it's supposed to be about seeking God and turned it out, flipped tables over literally, just like one of the housewives would do at what he had experienced and what he was seeing. And that lets us know something very profound that modern religious people overlook altogether the things jesus is jesus got upset over is not uh lgbt people in the ministry existing being out none of that at all especially the t the trans people no that's not what jesus is going off on at all the one thing that has set jesus off is the fact that religion has been turned into a business in plain english the fact that the approaching god has been turned in a, a way of getting in the people's pockets just one more way of <clears throat> excuse me taking money from the people and worse even worse misleading the people into thinking that that's how you get to god 
That's the one thing that Jesus is set off by. And you could see it in our other other readings on our uh, the rest of the Bible as we explore it other days of the week. <clears throat> Excuse me. As this whole system was set up, uh, at least of one of the sects of religion, the one one of the ones mentioned in the Bible, and remember there are many, how it was set up and established as a way of getting paid and money from the people and setting out laws that they have to follow and consequences, including fines, for breaking those laws that they often are exempt from, exempt to laws they're exempt from um so they could get to enforce those laws on the community but weren't subject to having to follow those laws at all and it's one of the things jesus went off on also when he's confronted um by the religious people in another passage maybe even in this one i'm not sure but in this one for sure he's going on off on the fact that they're making turning our father's house into a marketplace um, and I think that's what he's even going to go into. Verse 13, and he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. So um, Jesus is saying here that what God, seeking God is supposed to be about is about prayer and finding God. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, what going to the holy place is supposed to be about. And that's whether the holy place is church, your temple, your mosque, whatever you call your holy place, your teepee, whatever you call your holy place where you seek the higher realms, the God, wherever you, whatever you call that, what that's supposed to be about is prayer and seeking God and getting in touch with the Almighty. And what Jesus is quoting is what they'd know, an Old Testament verse, um, from the book of Isaiah, chapter 56, verse 7. And I don't just know these, by the way. Not all of these. Not even the half of these. I'm using the blueletterbible.org website, um, the New King James Version, in case you don't have one yourself, uh, a hard copy. You can use it also and see what I'm referring to. Um, and what Jesus is referring to, that's what he's bringing up. Some of their own uh, paperwork. Uh, some of their own receipts so that they can go back and look on it since they should know it actually since they're preaching it and supposedly living by it Jesus is bringing that up to them to let them know that's what seeking God is supposed to be about what that's what coming to church is supposed to be about prayer and seeking God but he's saying what they've turned it into is a den of thieves fulfilling another passage in what we call the Old Testament from the book of Jeremiah, another prophet, chapter 7, verse 11. So Jesus is letting them know prophecies that they're fulfilling. So we saw earlier where the narrator was letting us know that they believe a moment in this chapter was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. What we see here now is Jesus letting us all know that this is a moment of them fulfilling what we call Old Testament prophecy in the book of Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 11 that what they've turned the house of God what and the house of prayer into is a den of thieves where um nothing good is happening where you're not actually seeking and finding God at all excuse me
But what instead what you're finding is a den of thieves where you'll get robbed, literally robbed of the truth, figuratively, figurative, figuratively robbed of, um, maybe actually that's the figurative part. The literal part is where they pass around the donation bucket or basket and fill up on that. Um, that's probably the literal part. And the figurative part is getting robbed of the truth. But you're actually getting robbed of that also. Which is actually probably worse. Verse 14. And then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So people are steadily approaching Jesus. Um, multitudes of people. And not just the... Uh, not actually the wealthy uh, elite, as you'd call them. The, although they also their story after story of them also approaching Jesus but instead common people who just need help are approaching Jesus and doing all they can to get to him verse 15 but when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying Hosanna to the son of David they were indignant so the religious order, like I said, the law lawgivers and enforcement who are exempt from some from those same laws, see what's happening and they're not pleased by it. And they hear what's happening and they're not pleased by it. They're worked. And so they have something to say too. Verse sixteen and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? So it's almost like Jesus was ready for them or knew they were going to approach him with that sass because when they did, he had a response for them, once again referring them back to their own religious dogma, their own teachings. The book of Psalms, in this case, is what Jesus is referring to, chapter 8, verse 2, where Jesus is letting them know, yeah, I do hear what they're saying. They're giving praise to God that they believe the fulfillment of those prophecies is happening right before their eyes with Jesus showing up there and entering on the donkey. He's like, yeah, he does, does see that they recognize that and God bless them for it. And he's saying, and what's happening is the fulfillment of one of your other passages that you turn to and preach. Chapter 8 of Psalms. He's saying, in them saying that, instead of the wise and learned like they profess to be, and give themselves credentials to be. Instead, it's the common people who recognize what's right in front of them and are grateful and full of praise for it. And he's letting us know that's another moment being fulfilled right there in front of our eyes. Verse 17, then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. So Jesus said what he had to say and kept it moving. He's left the city and gone on to another area called Bethany. Verse 18. Now in the morning as he returned to the city, he was hungry. So Jesus on the move again, like Willie says, saying, and he's saying here, um, and it's saying here that he's hungry. Verse 19. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. So Jesus was hungry and went seeking fruit from something that you would expect to have fruit on it. Although in another verse it let us know it's not the season for figs. It doesn't say that in this passage in the Gospels, uh, in this telling of the Gospels. 
But in others, it does mention that it's not the season for figs. So Jesus wasn't actually expecting it to have any figs on it. He knew there wouldn't be any figs on it, in other words. Yet he still said it theatrically, just like our politics is theatrics. You see, he theatrically said it because there is a need to say things. There's a need to um, um, actually vocalize and put that energy into those things being stated. And just like with the political theater and say like the January 6th thing, you notice I haven't talked about it much because it is just theater. If there's no criminal response to all of this time that's gone by and the research and obvious clear evidence and even confessing of it by the people involved in it soon after it happened, if all of that doesn't lead to any criminal um, response by the powers that be, then it is, again, it's just theater, and there's no need to respond to it. But once there is criminal responses to it that are proportionate to and correlating to the people who committed the obvious criminal offenses, then, yeah, maybe there'd be something to talk about. Meantime, it's just theatrics, and it's also something that also needs to be Vocalized and has that have that energy spoken into it, just like Jesus saying that with the fig tree. It's not that he didn't know that it wasn't the season for figs or that there weren't any figs on the tree, but that it needed to be vocalized and said and stated so that it would be here for our reference and for all time in the, what we call the Gospels here in the book of Matthew chapter 21 so that it can be stated here. That's why I believe Jesus actually said it so that it would be documented but then also for another purpose and it's going to reveal itself uh, beyond that. The first purpose is that one like I said so that it would be scribed so it would be written. Um, but then look at what he actually says let no fruit grow on you ever again. And And then that's the red letter part. This response to Jesus seeking fruit from it and finding none is a verbal one. Jesus has a message for it, a vocal one. He says something to it, puts that out there in the universe. In other words, that the tree is now basically cursed to be barren, that um, no fruit will grow on it ever again. It's going to be barren. Um, But I think there's another hidden message to it. And Jesus, it's going to get into it. Where um in the next verse, because we see the tree immediately withered away. It was immediately barren after that. That's when a tree doesn't bear fruit. It doesn't bear any leaves. It's just staying. It's a dry tree, almost like a eunuch, like the Old Testament says. Verse twenty, it's still alive, but there's no fruit being born on it, like a person who doesn't have any kids. Verse twenty, and when the disciples saw it. They marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? So leave it to the disciples to play the role of us, the um, modern-day believer trying to find faith, even though they have the privilege of having the eyewitness of the things happening, having the ear witness of hearing the messages being taught. They have that benefit, and yet many times... They seem as green as the grass, just like we are sometimes with what's going on in the narrative. Um, so in this instance, they're wondering what happened. How? Did, what happened to the tree? How did it wither away so quickly? Um, and so for them to say that means the tree must have had leaves or fruit 
previously, even if not then, in instance, they're coming across it now. It must have been known to not have been barren before. And probably it's known that way since there are probably other trees nearby that are green and have fruit on them. But I don't want to assume that. But the, for whatever reason, the disciples recognize that the tree isn't what it used to be. It just ain't. Verse 21, so Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. So Jesus is letting us know and letting them know the thing to try to flex is not clout chasing and grabbing for greatness in heaven in that sense, but instead try to be great in God's eyes by taking one the lowly route the humble route and by two showing some faith and I know that's a that's a that's a tall order to show faith especially with the surroundings of the world in modern times but even back then we see the disciples weren't always the most most faithful or faith flexing even with Jesus walking right there with them as soon as Jesus wasn't, even sometimes when Jesus was apart from them, like when he sent them ahead of him, they sometimes would have the faith to perform miracles and cast out demons and stuff. But sometimes they didn't. And sometimes they disappoint the crowds. And the crowds would have to see Jesus face to face to try and get the response they were looking for. For whatever reason, whether it was actually about the disciples or about the expectations of the person, persons who were seeking um, the miracle or both it's different things with different people at different times but so that we stay on point Jesus is letting us know faith can move mountains if we have it um, um, let's see and that and, and, um, and he's saying so and as far as the fig tree in a natural sense so in the in the supernatural sense, okay, faith can move mountains. Things can be changed that seem like they're impossible to change, like laws. Uh, and you can see that can work in both ways. For how long were people slaves treated like crap? And even le- it was legalized, treated like crap. By the same country, they the slaves helped build. Enslaved people were treated like crap, literally. And it was codified until the laws changed. And eventually gave the enslaved people rights. And then gave people um, rights to even intermarry and even intermarry of the same sex. And it was, the codes keep changing. The rights can keep changing. The laws can change in one sense. But then if people get sleepy and if people get complacent, the laws can change back the other way also. Where those rights and laws and privileges can be snatched away right from underneath your feet and then you see it happening with the whole Roe v. Wade thing what was considered settled law is considered past law and there's a new law and you see it's happening even now but Jesus is letting us know mountains can be moved it may not happen instantaneously like Jesus was able to make a move but you can make mountains you can make change you can make things and times you can affect them. It just may take time. It may not be that instantaneous thing, but you may be that next pebble or that next piece of straw that breaks the camel's back or the next pebble 
to weigh uh, down that, uh, uh, to add to that hill and make it a mountain. It may be you. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. So Jesus is letting us know there. It's to, to emphasizing it's about our faith. That's what's expected of us to have um, again and again is faith. Whether we, just like he sent them out to go gather the donkey and the colt, um, have faith and just do it. Have it, be obedient and do it. That's the part that we fill in the blank as the faith. And he's letting uh, us all know there also that, <clears throat> excuse me, that when we ask for things in prayer, step one is to pray about it, approach God with it, prayer. That's he's emphasizing that again. Um, and then believing. So have the faith, have belief that we'll receive it. And he says you will receive it. So that's not a... um. He didn't say you shall receive it where it's written in stone, but it said you will receive it, meaning if you are willing to, if your will matches with your faith, with your words, with your prayer, we will receive it. And then, but then that goes into, we, it doesn't seem like we always receive them. Well, sometimes we receive them. Sometimes it takes time to receive them. And then sometimes, and this will be the part that sounds crazy, in a more metaphysical sense, in a scientific sense, in a metaverse sense, you may receive them and don't realize it in a different version of yourself that's being prospered and blessed again and again by the different things we claim in this life and don't see in this life but manifest in another version, a more happy, perfect version of ourselves, or so we believe that version to be. They may not be that at all. But they may be manifesting or realizing the manifestation of these different things that we ask for in this world and this existence and don't necessarily get to experience the realization of. Just something to think of. Verse 23. Now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? So once again, he's confronted by no other than the religious leaders, the chief priests, getting in his face, wondering who's giving you the authority to come in here and talk smack to us. Who is it that's backing you up? Verse 24, but Jesus answered and said to them, I also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus does what he often does when he's confronted by the religious people. Answers a question with a question. They've got questions for him. He's like, okay, well, I've got questions too. Here's my question to you. If you answer it, I'll answer you. <clears throat> so here's the question, verse 25, which seems fair. Verse 25, excuse me. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? So Jesus' question is about John the Baptist, as he's no title or named, remembered, thought of. John the Baptist, that's who he's asking them about. And he's asking them, Who gave John his anointing? Who gave John his baptism? Who gave John that inkling to go out into the wilderness 
and preach his message that he preached up until the time he got scooped up and um, martyred, you know, beheaded and all of that. Who gave him his his unction to do it? It's what Jesus is asking them. Was it from heaven? Like God gave it to him, gave him that fire? Or was it from men? Just something people uh, that he cooked up in himself and felt like going out and doing. Which one was it? Verse 26. So the people, the religious people are questioning, trying to reason how they should answer Jesus. And they say, well, if they say that it's God given, John the Baptist is obviously and clearly God sent. Then they know they can't say that because they rejected John the Baptist and um, didn't help in his situation with ending up getting beheaded. They rejected him. Um, they called him crazy, said he had a demon. Um, verse six or, or um, verse twenty-six. So they don't. They can't say, okay, well, his anointing, his fire was from heaven. So they said. So the other option is that Jesus gave them was from heaven or from men. The other option is to say John the Baptist got his fire from men. It's just something he cooked up himself. Another possibility. So let's see how they deal with that. Verse 26. But if we say from men, they fear the multitude for all count John as a prophet. So they're like, well, we can't say he got his fire, his spirit that moved him from heaven because they rejected him. So... Uh, if you really believed it was God sent, then why do you why did they reject it? And then, but they can't turn around and say it's from men because all the people do believe John's fire came from heaven. John's message, John's ministry was heaven sent. So they can't do that because if they say that, they know the people will turn on them instantly. Because no matter how they feel about Jesus, they all, as far as the multitude goes, believe that John the Baptist was a righteous, holy man. Um, who didn't claim to be Jesus and didn't even um, didn't even rightfully or wrongfully claim to be the prophet who was to precede Jesus. He didn't do that. Probably for his own safety. It's not real clear. That'd be my guess. Probably for his own safety to keep from being hassled by these same religious people who are attempting to hassle Jesus. So probably to avoid all that, he didn't claim any of those roles even though he fulfilled those same roles. Um, uh, like the previous um, scriptures we went over said he seems to be the fulfillment of the reincarnation in other words of um, of um, Elijah the prophet who was said to come before the Messiah the Christ Jesus he's believed to be those same roles but didn't profess to be any of those roles and didn't profess to be Christ either and ended up ended up beheaded maybe because he didn't um proclaim those roles uh proclaim the role of the prophet that he clearly was even according to Jesus but maybe because he chose to save his neck or think he was saving his neck by not saying that he is the prophet as he was confronted by the religious, when he was confronted by the religious leaders, maybe that's what led to his being crucified. The fact of, like, I'm not crucified, I'm sorry, beheaded. Maybe that's what Jesus means when he says those who seek to save their life will lose it. And he who seeks to save his life will save it. Maybe that's an example of that in John trying to save his life. And I'm just guessing, I don't know. Maybe that's what happened. John tried to save his life by saying he's not the prophet or the Messiah. Um, but in, instead of claiming, yeah, I am the prophet 
who is to proclaim the Messiah. And yet Jesus is the Messiah, which he did claim. He claimed openly that Jesus was the um the the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world and um proclaim that freely. But when he was confronted, he sorta, of, it seems, backed down from proclaiming his part in the big picture grand scheme of things. And whether that was out of humility or fear or ignorance, it's not real clear. Verse 28, but what do you think? A man had two sons. Did we skip over one? We did. I'm sorry. So verse 27, so they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So they molded over a little bit as to what to answer Jesus. And they came up with the answer of saying they don't know, thinking that'll be good enough. Just like when you see people take the stand and say, oh, I don't know. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't recall. I don't recall. I don't recall. And smirk through it. You've seen them do that. Even recently, senators smirk, smirk through hearings where they've sworn an oath to the God they supposedly believe in, sometimes with the hand on the Bible even, will swear that oath and sit right there and smirk through an oath of saying, oh, I don't know, and saying, oh, I don't recall, or I don't remember, when you can't refute whether they know it, recall it, or remember it, which they know. That's why they smirk. But if they really believe in a God, the God in the Bible anyway, one of the gods of the Bible, any one of the ones from Genesis to Revelation, and there are more than one. We've read that on our other nightly re our other daily readings. Um, if you really believe that, when you put your hand on that Bible, then you have to also believe you have um, a price to pay for telling those lies because it's a lie to say it may you it's a lie to say that you don't know don't recall or don't remember if you do know do recall or do remember whether they can prove that you do know do recall or do remember it or not for you to do that means either you don't believe god either the god you believe in doesn't actually exist or doesn't care when you lie or you don't believe any of that at all or you've got to believe there's going to be a payday there's going to be a a a, a a moment a judgment day for um those sort of lies but you just don't it just doesn't really seem like it when you're in the tv not watching it sometimes but jesus is letting them know he's not having it with their um uh answer when they're dodging the question of saying that they don't know because they know good and well what they want to say because if if they did believe that john was just a man on a mission of his own then why don't they just say that and bump what the people have to think about it and what the people have to say about it just tell the people they're wrong and they're mistaken even though john didn't actually do anything that should be an offense to them and if they believe that john was from heaven his mission was from heaven heaven sent like in excess saying then if they really believe that then stand by that and be those um intermediaries to god that they claim to be don't just be there uh, bumping their gums, saying nothing. Take a stand. Be don't be lukewarm. Don't be, either be hot or be cold. Don't be that lukewarm that gets spewing out. Um, but Jesus is letting them know he's not having it. So since they won't answer, he won't answer either. Which seems to me a, a lesson to us also, and a lesson I've had to learn in the hard way sometimes that just because someone shares their dark secrets with you, which that's cool if they feel close enough with you to share them with you that doesn't mean you necessarily have to do show and tell with them and share all your 
feelings and emotions and secrets with them. In fact, sometimes it may be good for you to just check yourself with people. Uh, People can be dirty sometimes. Verse 28, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. So Jesus is letting them know. Jesus has already turned out the, 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 the temple and uh, flipped the tables and called out the bad religion and given them a question They that was so tough on them, they refused to answer it. So instead of bothering with them anymore, with that nonsense of theirs, since they refused to answer a simple question he gave them, he's turned to the people again, and uh, or turned to them again with another question. And he says, what do you think? A man had two sons. So he's given not necessarily a parable, but an example of a person who had two sons, a man who had two sons. And he said, to, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. So imagine a person with two sons and he's asking one of them to go work in his vineyard. He, so clearly vineyard means he's growing grapes and he's probably in the wine business. Verse 29, he answered and he answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. So with the example of the first son, he's asked them to do something for him and he refused to. But he regretted what he asked him to do, and he did it. I remember that with my own mama, like when she was going through different things, and when she'd ask for help, and some, and I'd not always say yes when I should, but when I did, I was grateful. I was glad. I'm thankful that I did turn around and help what I did. But it wasn't always on time, and wasn't always when it should be. But I thank God I don't have the regret of not doing it at all. But um, that's how one of the children responds. That's how the first responded. They said no at first, but regretted it and went back and did it. Verse 30, then he came to the second and said, likewise. He answered and said, I go, sir. And he did not go. So the second one tells the parent exactly what they want to hear. Says, yes, they'll do just what you want them to do. But they don't necessarily do it at all. But they told you what you wanted to hear. They tickled your ear what you wanted to hear. Now, how satisfying is that? Is it more satisfying to have a child, a person, someone that you ask something from, tell you no, but then turn around and and think about it, have a change of heart, and then say yes and do it? Or someone who says yes, but doesn't actually do it? That can't possibly be that satisfying. But maybe it is satisfying just knowing that they said yes in the first place. I don't know. I don't have any kids. Um, But I would imagine that it would be more satisfying to have the one who actually does what you want them to do. Uh, But let's see. So, um, verse 30. Did we skip one? Just in case, 30. Then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he said, answered and said i go sir but he did not go i think we did read that one verse 31 which of the two did the will of his father they said to him the first jesus said to them surely i say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of god before you so a couple of things about this verse which is profound was for me is for me first jesus is saying so which of the two in a common sense sort of way do you think did was actually obedient to the will of what his father asked him to do the first one who said no then had a change of heart and did it or the second one who 
paid lip service and said exactly what he wanted, knew his father wanted to hear, but didn't actually do it. Which one do you believe is actually pleasing to uh, his father, to their father, the first or the second? And so the people recognize, well, obviously, um, the one who uh, said it, who said no, but then turned around and did it. That's who, who what counts, the one who actually did it. That's what counts. Um, so Jesus is saying to them, you're right. That's who's uh, pleasing. And he's saying the who's pleasing in God's eyes, uh, who is um, going to actually enter the kingdom of God. And this is the profound part, the huge part. The part where if America were really a God-fearing nation, things would change and be a whole lot more progressive and more like what comes to mind, European nations, um, when it comes to ideas of sexuality. And it's in what Jesus says here. He's saying, assuredly, I say to you. So that's without a doubt, be sure to know this. Don't overlook this. Don't read over this. That tax collectors and harlots... We know what tax collectors are. Those are people who, the IRS, for instance, who you pay your taxes to, to run government. Generally despised, one generally despised group of people. But the other generally despised group of people, who I happen to be a member of, uh, are the second group that Jesus talks about, the harlots. And when Jesus says harlots here, it's not in the Old Testament sense of, oh, actually, it happens in the New Testament too. There's two different ways of talking about harlots in the Bible. One is the one of the common senses is harlots like what we commonly say are whores, or even more commonly say hoes, or even more commonly and respectfully say uh, sex workers or prostitutes. All those are the same way of saying harlots in the sense of how Jesus is saying it here. Jesus will use, and the Bible also uses the same word in another way. In the same way you use the word to, T-O, it, you can, it also appears in the way T-O-O, and also appears in the way T-W-O, same word to, appearing three different ways. So in the same way, the word harlot has more than one meaning. It has the word harlot, like I said, a sex worker, and so forth. In that sense, that I'm, I, I admit to being a part of, um, with the movies and whatnot, I'm under that umbrella. Um, but um, the other sense that I don't admit to being a part of, and I don't want to be a part of, don't hope and pray, hope, God forbid, I'm not a part of, is the sense of harlots that's not intended in this sense, that um, the people who are unfaithful, that sort of harlotry, where we talk about where it it says, um, uh, like in the Old Testament, where the people are playing the harlot, it'll say, like with the people of, with a foreign people, with foreign gods, and with taking part in foreign um, customs and stuff, that sort of harlotry, that's a different sort of harlotry, that's not the harlotry talking about right here that sort of harlotry harlotry is more talking about idolatry the harlotry jesus is talking about here jesus and his red letter is saying is profound in the sense it's letting us know the people who are actually going to make it into heaven are the people who are despised and the lowest class or caste of people the tax collectors who like i said are despised group of people and the harlots who are despised not because of what we do as sex workers 
um, because the people we do it with are some of the same people who are in the rest of society. So that's not the reason. It's despised by the rest of society for, um, I don't get it actually, since <laughs> I've interacted with politicians and law enforcement and clergy and family men and single men and educated men and gangster men. I've and so it's I'm not sure why. I think maybe that must be why because you interact with so many different types of people uh that most people don't get to interact with. So maybe there's some sort of envy there. I don't get it. And then maybe I could see by why by the females and women there might be that um this the the, the despising or is that the word um the despicable feeling by the women because you're interacting with their quote unquote men but um I'm not real sure why harlots sex workers get the same rep that uh tax collectors would it's not like we're un they're taking things by force the people who come to us are voluntary voluntarily coming to us whereas with tax collectors you generally go to them uh because you have to but either way jesus is saying the most despised uh people among society are the ones who are actually going to get into heaven before you do before they do um so you can imagine how that went over with them probably not real well but jesus said it so it's red letters can't deny it for John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. So Jesus is saying that's what's stopping them, their own, their own actions, their own approach. The fact that they're rejecting the one, the predest, the opening act, as it were, to the Messiah, to Christ. They're rejecting Jesus and John the Baptist. When the people didn't do that, the common folks, the hoes, and the tax collectors didn't do that at all. They're embracing the salvation and the chance at being uh, at righteousness and making it to heaven. The one thing, the holy folks, the people who think they already got it, the self-righteous, aren't bothering to do. They aren't. They can't be bothered with uh, seeking Jesus, and they already took care of John the Baptist. And they intend to take care of Jesus next, but what they don't, what they won't seem to embrace is that they're fulfilling prophecies in doing all of those things. Um, but he's saying what Jesus is letting them know, letting us all know, is that where they failed with their self-righteousness, the common people, the hoes and tax collectors, uh, the despised people, uh, have succeeded in embracing the chance at salvation that John heralded and that Jesus uh, is, is offering to all anyone humble enough and willing whosoever will verse um, 28 oh I'm sorry I think I jumped some verse 33 so that's a good message for us sex workers we get a ticket to the party too um verse 33 here another parable there was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it dug a wine press in it and built a tower 
and he leased the divine dressers and went into a far country. So Jesus is giving us another parable, like a, a, a nursery rhyme to help us understand a big picture idea. He's breaking down to simplify it for us. To say, imagine someone who owns some property, owns a vineyard, another vineyard owner, um, who's set it all up for success with a tower and a vat and uh, uh, everything that it needs to succeed. And then he's left it. Let me have a drink of water, excuse me. He set his vineyard up for success with everything needed to help it succeed, including fine dressers or people to take care of it. And he's moved on his way to handle some other business and take care of other things in a far country. So not close enough that he can see to attend to it himself. Verse 34. Uh, now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. So it's just about showtime and he wants to see how the how the vineyard is turning out how are the fruit coming verse 21 i'm sorry verse 35 and the vine dressers took his servants beat one killed one and stoned another so the vine dressers are kind of shady they're abusing and mistreating the um servants who are just coming to see what the fruit's doing how's it all coming along Verse 36, again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. So at least they're not killing them. They're beating them up pretty bad, and that's not good. And sending them back, I guess, with none of the fruit, but with le at least with a message to basically say they're not interested in the contract that they had for the vines, for the vineyard. Verse 37, then last of all, um, I think we skipped one. Verse 36. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. 37. Then last of all, he, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. So there's going to be a correlation drawn here between sending all these servants and them being abused and mistreated to the people who are supposed to be tending to the vineyard. Verse 37. And last of all, so then last of all, he sent his son saying sent to them saying they will respect my son so last of all the son gets sent the son of the vineyard owner to go tend to the vine dressers and to see what's up with the fruit and why they keep abusing all my servants verse 38 but when the vine dressers saw the son they said among themselves this is the heir come let us kill him and seize his inheritance so the vine dressers have no good in mind and when they get the chance, when they see now that the son has been sent, the one who actually has authority and ownership over the property, they decide to go ahead and power grab and ultimately clout chase by taking out the son, the one who has the authority. Verse 39, so they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. So you can kind of see where that's leading. When they got a chance, they killed the son. Verse 40, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? So Jesus is, Jesus is saying, so when that moment of truth comes, when judgment day comes, what do you think, the one who has authority over all, what do you think when judgment day comes and God Almighty has authority over all, 
When that judgment day comes, what do you think God Almighty is going to do to the people who dared reject, not only reject, but reject and condemn and even take into their hands to shed the blood of the one who was sent just to see what the fruit's like and to save their lives? Not just them, to save us all. That the he's, They're just the ones who had the duty, since the Old Testament, as we call it, laid out for them that they're to be watching for these different signs and different events and different words and occurrences that are going to point to, hey, the Messiah is here. Hey, the Christ is here. Hey, these things are going to happen to him and look out for them. And then all of it is real for them that they were supposed to be looking out and sharing all of that information with people. But instead, it became about getting those offerings, making sure you bring your bulls and your rams and your goats and your sheep and your flour, making sure you bring that regularly, monthly, daily, weekly, however often to the temple. That's what it became about. And it became about that very, very quickly. And um, that's what Jesus went off on earlier in this chapter. And it seems to be where people, I think, get distracted because why wouldn't you think that a church is blessed if it's got millions of members and it's huge a mega church if it's one of those and he's got the preacher's got mansions and cars and jets and all of that why would you not think that well god must be blessing them you would think that they're because they, that could be true they may be uh blessed for sure they may very well be blessed but what's supposed to matter if you're a christian is if the message they're giving you is something Christ said, things that Christ said, or are they other people's words, other people's messages? Um, anyway, verse 40, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, will you, what, do you, what will he do to those vine dressers? So Jesus is saying, okay, so they did the, um, this is how they treated the um, servants. And if you want to align it with the occurrences in history and with the people and the times, you um, we would look at the events in the Bible that we're reading through slowly but surely, God willing, through our other daily readings. But um, you can see how they, the prophets are going to be treated. It's not good. One after the other are going to be mistreated. And basically, um, that aligns with the whole parable of what Jesus is giving here. Of that God has sent um, person after person to humanity and specifically in this case the people of the promises of the prophecies who were to be looking for Messiah's coming so that they would know when uh, Messiah did make an appearance to them as we Christians believe a couple of thousand years ago just about as Jesus and then presumably again as the son of man as presumably, I guess, other religions will accept him as his first coming. Um, whatever the case may be, uh, Jesus, I think, is letting us know this is how the overlay works. That holy that prophets have been sent and rejected, sometimes beaten, sometimes stoned, sometimes killed. And for sure, the son, when he was sent, was killed. Jesus was killed when he came with the uh, message from above for the people. So he's saying, "What do you think? He's what do you think? The one who has power and authority over it all is going to do when um, judgment day comes." 
verse 41 they said to him he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who render to him the fruits in their seasons so that answer is not red letter that's not jesus saying that that that's what's going to happen that's the people saying that that's what they believe is going to happen that's what the vine dresser would do when he comes to finally claim his vineyard himself um I guess he'll be able to do it with something that all his servants and son didn't have some 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 sort of authority that'll be recognized by them that they didn't recognize before. Only thing I could think of would be arms, some sort of uh, army of arms that would reinforce it. Because if law were enough, then that would have been enough to stop it when the servants showed up just to see what was going on with the vineyard. But that wasn't enough any more than it's enough to stop Emmett Till from being murdered or George Floyd from being murdered or in many of the thousands and thousands, if not millions in between from being harassed and terrorized and murdered. It's terrible, but it's a uh, reality. Law isn't enough to stop any more than thou shalt not lie is enough to stop people from lying. Um, so law isn't enough to do it, but, um, it seems consequences and punishments, those get closer to getting to curbing people's behavior and actions if uh, not things like uh, prevention, like uh, education, opportunity, in some cases castration, depending on what it is you're trying to affect change with. You can affect it different ways and more effective ways depending on what it is you're trying to actually affect. But Jesus is letting the the disciples believe that what he's going to do is come back and let them know who's boss and um, destroy them and um, also lease the vineyard to other people. So that's there. He's going to tend to the property also by making sure he has other people who are going to tend to it. Presumably those people will be more faithful. Um, so let's, let's see what Jesus answers. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So what Jesus does here is, so far, doesn't answer his own question about um, what do you think they're going to do? What do you think the owner of me is going to do? When he comes, he let the disciples answer it and doesn't say whether, yeah, you're right, that's what what he's going to do. Or no, he's going to take a different approach altogether. Instead, he comes with um, another statement, another question, asking them if they've uh, reflected on another part of their own dogma, their own teachings, their own scriptures. That's what Jesus uses again and again when it comes to these uh, religious hypocrites because that's basically what they are the same as in modern times he uses fights fire with fire he uses their own instrument that they use to attempts to browbeat people who are ignorant of what jesus actually says to into believing what it is they say is uh gospel truth and um so Jesus is using their approach and using what they preach as their own words of God's words against them. And he's asking them, well, have, what about this part of what you preach? What about your own teachings that say this? Because he's reflecting on 
the book of Psalms, chapter 118, uh, verses 22 and 23 in this instance. So this is the second time the book of Psalms is coming up that Jesus is reflecting on that to let them know you're fulfilling prophecy. And um, he's saying that, I believe what he's saying is he's that stone that they're rejecting. He's that cornerstone. And that Christianity is that new thing that um, is um, what's being established and built and marvelous in our eyes. It's a wonder. It's something. It causes questions in our eyes and in their eyes for sure. Um, verse 43, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of our eyes for sure too, actually, because they got even closer witness than we get. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. So what Jesus is saying there is letting them know, uh, it's time's up, Rastafasas. It's over. It's now what you've had your chance. I've, he's appeared to them now. Showing them he is the fulfillment of all those things that they're supposed to be on the lookout for. And they're rejecting it. So I'm not going to beg you to show up to the party. Instead, I'll just invite others. Others will be invited to the kingdom. And that's where Christianity, the new, um, comes in. And that's not to say that it's a blanket statement for all of uh, the people of the, the religion Jesus is encountering here. Because we know some his own disciples are of that same religion. Jesus himself was born of that religion. Other sects of that religion exist. And we know Jesus' condemnation of what's happening to them and what they're doing to him already came to pass. The prophecy he gave about it, and maybe he'll go into it in this reading. So I'll save that. Um, uh, but just in case he doesn't, it doesn't. It happened already in 70 AD where Jesus let them know that um, around 70 AD that that's what was going to happen to them and for their rejection of him. So people shouldn't transpose that onto any other religion uh, or religious sect at all. Jesus already pronounced it and it happened. Excuse me. Verse 43, therefore I say to you, oh, um, <clears throat> therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. That's why I believe Jesus is saying Christianity will become the, um, the, the rising star. It's, um, what's happening now. The promises and prophecies were given to the people of what we call the Old Testament so that they could see the signs of when the Savior appeared, Jesus. For the most part, the religious leaders rejected Jesus, just as in the in modern times. The, for the most part, the, relig the the political leaders reject the will of the people and still do whatever it is they choose to do, even because they're already paid either way. Their uh, security is assured, so they can act with impunity. They know nothing's going to happen. That laws won't apply to them so similarly the religious people know the same thing uh, at least when it comes to their laws they are not going to apply to them and they haven't applied to them so um they're not worried about it and they become complacent and jesus is letting them know and letting us know that the promise that they've rested their laurels on 
thinking, well, assuming it's theirs, it's going to be snatched up and taken away from them. It's not going to be so comfortable for them anymore because what they thought and assumed and were felt entitled to is not going to be theirs. Instead, it's going to be given to people who actually bear the fruit of it. Christians, Christianity. Um, and that's, again, that's not to say to condemn any other religion at all. Jesus has already laid it out that the 12 disciples are going to play a role, a judgment role in his description of the hereafter in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven, as he calls it. I believe he called it, might have said the kingdom of God, but whatever the case may be, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, for instance, letting us know that both play a role in the hereafter, in that grand scheme, big picture thing. So it's really not for us to judge. Anyway, that's a side thing altogether. Uh, so Jesus is letting us know and letting them know he's the fulfillment of those passages. He's that cornerstone. He's that rock. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. So Jesus is saying, so if you dare, try to cross his uh, Christian doctrines with uh, whatever it is you're preaching Whatever it is you're preaching will likely fall apart. But if you try to uh, crush whatever it is he's preaching, whatever it is you're preaching, then, or his, whatever he, uh, that's the first thing I said. But if you use whatever it is he's preaching, the words he has, the red letters he has, and compare it to the different doctrines, for instance, what you find in the Bible, it crushes them. It grinds them to powder. So it seems to me to be saying, Jesus seems to be saying here the significance of what it is he has to say in comparison to what it is, whatever it is people will use in their approach, our approach into finding God and trying to compare it to or hold it up to what it is Jesus has to say. It seems to me this is the one of the most significant red letter um, teachings that Jesus gives to let us know the significance of the red letters and how different they are from everything else that's out there. Verse 45, now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. So they aren't that slow. They they know he's talking about them. The religious people know Jesus is challenging them with the things he's saying. And how do you think they feel about that? You, you know they don't like that. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. So the religious people don't like it to the extent that they're even willing to get physical, physical. They're willing to put their hands on the Savior. They're willing to lay hands on Jesus because they don't like what he said. They've already taken care of John the Baptist. Well, they didn't necessarily do that. Uh, John's own uh, words against the powers that be helped procure that for him. But in this case, the religious people are more than willing and ready to do uh, the unthinkable. Put murder into the hands of the people who have the order that thou shalt not kill. Go figure. Go figure it somewhere else, though, because we just ended the reading here. That was the last verse in this chapter. I appreciate you checking it out with me. And as always, hope it's a blessing for you in trying to figure and figure things out. 
Um, you can catch these readings here on this platform, like I said, or on mine, like I mentioned. It's free. Hope you stay safe, and I thank you for joining me now, and hope you'll join me again. God bless you, and peace be with you.